series entitled Images of the Savior. We are looking at some of the varied images that occur in the Old Testament that help us anticipate the Savior, or help us anticipate the coming Savior or coming Messiah. This Sunday, we'll look at the image of the Son of Man. That is an image that we find in the Old Testament, repeated in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. I'll touch on each of the three passages that we were read this morning. It will be helpful to have your finger in both page 11, which you'll find some sermon notes, and on page 3 as we go through uh, these uh, three passages. Three points to observe this morning. These three passages, they're united not only in that they reference the coming of the Son of Man, but they are also similar in their setting. They are similar in their content, and they are similar in their purpose. And those will be the three points that we consider this morning, the setting, the content, and the purpose of these three letters. The setting. Each of these settings is not particularly encouraging. Uh, let me just touch briefly. This is obviously we're going to touch on each three passage, so very cursory uh, touching on the setting of each of these. The book of Daniel, written by the same author, was written around the year 550 B.C., so 550 years before the Savior. The setting, uh, the Daniel was written in Babylon. Why Babylon? That's not a very good place to be if you're an Israelite. Well, in the year 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem, uh, burned the temple, sent the people of God into exile. One of those was Babylon. One of, one of those people was Daniel, and he went into Babylon. So Daniel was without a home, without a religion, without a people. He was in exile, and in exile from which he would never return. Setting of number one. Setting of number two, John, the author of the book of Revelation, his setting was no better. This, uh, the time period was around the year 80 or 90 AD, so 40 to 50 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. It was during a time when the church was encountering the first, but certainly not the last, systematic persecution. And John, the author of the book of Revelation, as well as the gospel, was in exile on the island of Patmos, more accurately prison on the island of Patmos, which is a small island off the coast of Turkey. And uh, just like Daniel was not in an encouraging situation, neither was John. He would, not, uh, he would die in prison, the only disciple to die of natural causes, but natural causes in prison. The setting of the third is perhaps the least encouraging of them all from a human perspective. This is from uh, the, the words of Jesus, uh, but in those days, the, the gospel from the, uh, the, from the gospel of Mark, the verse after our reading concludes, gives us a picture of the setting. And so the verse after what we read is this. Two days later, it was the feast of the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they, they might take Jesus to put him to death. All right, so this occurs in Holy Week. Think of the events of Holy Week. Palm Sunday quickly uh, shifts to Monday, Thursday, where Jesus gathers with his disciples and he's betrayed. And uh, on Good Friday, he is, uh, of course, crucified. So this passage occurs two days. Jesus occurs, what Jesus says occurs two days before he's betrayed. Right, so two days before the Monday, Thursday, he says, hey, look, guys, I'm the son of man. I will be coming in great power and great glory. And three days later, he will be naked, dying on a cross. So the setting is these disciples are well, well on the way to the cross. And so that's the setting of each 
of these passages. The first is set in exile. The second is set in prison. The third is set on the way to the cross. In your sermon notes, flipping back to page 11, I include a quote which says, we should give it, the it is these passages, we should give these passages credit for their indomitable hope, which is not always supported by a rational analysis of human affairs. What the author is saying is that a rational analysis of the human affairs of John, of Daniel, or of Jesus on the road to the cross do not lend themselves to hope. They lend themselves to despair. However, I contend that it's not just a rational analysis of their settings which lends to despair. I believe that a rational analysis of the human condition, period, should lead us not to hope, but to despair. Let me explain, and let me illustrate with a lesser known romantic comedy. Notting Hill, circa 1999. The story is a little bit of a princess and the pauper. Julia Roberts plays herself. Uh, she is a filming a, shooting a film in London. She goes undercover into a bookstore and hits it off with the owner of the bookstore, a middle-class man named, played by Hugh Grant. So this romance develops, and over the course of the romance, Hugh Grant's character has Julia Roberts, the famous actor, to the middle-class uh, dinner and with a bunch of their middle-class friends. So it's the famous princess, the movie star, Julia Roberts, with a bunch of middle-class English people, and it's very British humor. They have a competition. There's one brownie left at the end of dinner, and they have a competition. Who gets the last brownie? And the host says, I know who gets the last brownie. The person with the saddest life. They, again, very British. Uh, and so they go around the, the, the table sharing who's if you rationally analyzed each of the lives of the people sitting around the table, who gets the brownie? And they're about to award the brownie to Hugh Grant's character because he's been divorced and he's estranged and he's getting pudgy around the midsection. And before they give him the brownie, Julia Roberts' character says, wait, what about me? And again, she's the mega rich, mega beautiful actress. And everyone guffaws, you don't get the brownie, your life is darn near perfect. But she says, wait, give me a chance. I think I deserve a crack at that brownie. And so she says this. I've been on a diet since I've been 19. And then after listing a few travails of the rich and the beautiful, she says this. One day, not too long from now, my looks will go. Now, in Julia Roberts' case, that is not proved to be the case, but <laughs> one day, not too long from now, my looks will go. They will discover that I can't act. And I will be some sad, middle-aged person who looks a bit like someone who used to be famous. Pause. And they give her the brownie. The human condition, if rationally analyzed, does not lend itself to hope, period. And the Bible is unflinching in its assessment. You think this is depressing? Try the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book of 
wisdom in the Old Testament. And it's, it gives a rational analysis of the human condition. You don't want to know the, the, the author concludes it is all meaningless. It is all fruitless, just a chasing after the sun. The Psalms include the same sort of skeptical approach to the, uh, to the hopefulness of human life. The Psalms write this, Psalm 90. What is the span of my years? Seventy and maybe eighty in strength, but the sum of them is but labor and toil. They are gone here today and gone tomorrow. Psalm 39. We walk about like moving shadows. Busy in our rush, our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. That from Psalm 39. We rarely rationally assess the human condition. We prefer to tell ourselves sentimentalities. But every once in a while, you and I will encounter the desperate reality of the human condition. That it is what the psalmist says. That life under the sun is just as the author of the book of Ecclesiastes says. It is meaningless. A chasing after the sun. I've spent I was chasing after the wind, I should say. Over the past few months, I've spent more time in average in the hospital visiting people who are sick, very sick in some conditions. Some of whom have no earthly hope, some of whom will remember in our prayers. And when the irrational analysis of the very ill is crystal clear, just crystal clear, that person does not need to hear sentimentalities. That person does not need to hear, hey, it's going to get better. Any more than Daniel needed to hear, hey, you're going to get out of exile. He didn't. Any more than John needed to hear, you'll get out of prison. He didn't. Any more than Julia Roberts needed to hear, you'll stay young and beautiful ever, forever. She won't. When the human condition is rationally analyzed, you and I need apocalyptic hope. And that is exactly what we find in our passage. Apocalyptic hope. What does apocalypse mean? Apocalypse, we hear it, we think destruction. Apocalypse now. Apocalypse simply means revelation. Something from the outside that you don't know. And that's what the Bible offers us. Revelation is a supernatural communication, supernatural communication from God to man of truth, which the human mind unaided could not discover. The Bible gives us revealed hope, apocalyptic hope, hope from the outside, not an imminent, not imminent as in soon, not an imminent, a hope from within, but a hope from without. And that is what you need when you rationally assess the human condition, a hope that comes from without. So let me touch on each of these passages. Look at Daniel. Let's look at the content, moving to the second point, the content of uh, these passages. I want us to note that there are two figures in this Old Testament passage of Daniel. Look at verse 9. There were thrones placed. There was the Ancient of Days. Around his head was with pure wool, thrones with fiery flame, etc. This is clearly a reference to God Almighty. Yet, you'll note there's a second character. A second character who has all the characteristics of divinity. He is one that is ascribed like the Son of Man. 
who is given glory, who is given honor, who is given worship, who has a kingdom that will not last forever, excuse me, a kingdom that will last forever. And keep in mind, Judaism is strictly monotheistic. How many gods? Just one. But even in the pages of the Old Testament, there are hints, even more than hints, of a multiplicity within the Godhead. The Ancient of Days and one like the Son of Man, both deserving honor and worship and glory. To our second passage, the Gospel reading, the Son of Man is the most common way, Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man over 80 times. No one else refers to him as the Son of Man, only Jesus. You know, C.S. Lewis made a great argument. You may be familiar with it. He said that we must not patronize Jesus by thinking of him as a good person and a good moral teacher. Why? Because of passages like this one. Jesus says, hey, you know that character back in Daniel, the one that's given all authority, who's given all worship, who has an eternal kingdom? You know who that is? That's me. So C.S. Lewis writes, only a crazy person, excuse me, a man who was merely a man, instead of said the sort of things that Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else the devil of hell. You must make a choice. You must shut him up as a fool, spit at him, kill him as a demon, or fall at your feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open. He did not intend to. This is Jesus' favorite self, whom I am the son of, I am that character from Daniel that was anticipated 600 years ago. That's me. I'm the one with authority, etc. From a book of Revelation, although the title, the Son of Man, is not printed in this particular passage, it shows up right on the heels of Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. But again, you hear of someone coming on the clouds. Note that the Son of Man is always coming on the clouds. Why the clouds? Now, these are not the fluffy white clouds with unicorns. Uh, these are the storm clouds of Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, we read, The Lord thundered out of heaven. He reached down from on high. He grasped me. He drew me out of the water. The clouds in the Old Testament for the ancient man and woman, the clouds symbolized power, might. This building is oriented east to west. So the, over, uh, as I look out my window, I can see storm fronts roll in when a big cold front moves in. And it's ominous. And I've, I've got weather apps. I know it's coming. I know the temperature is going. I know the wind's coming. Imagine not knowing. Imagine just seeing the billowing clouds. It was a symbol of power. But this symbol of power is only a beast of burden for the Son of Man. He rides them. They're under his feet. And so the book of Revelation the last book of the Bible assures us that the Son of Man, the one who died on the cross, who rose, will return again in power, riding on the clouds to complete the restoration of all things. Similar setting, similar content, and friends, all these passages are united with a similar purpose. These are all written to beleaguered Christians, encouraging them to not give up. 
Daniel is written to exiles. People in Babylon. And Daniel gives the exiles in Babylon a glimpse of a final victory. Don't capitulate. Don't bend in Babylon. There's a final victory coming. Fight the good fight. Continue. Same thing for the book of Revelation to a persecuted church. Friends, there's a final victory out there. Don't, don't, I have an alliteration. Don't bend under Babylon. Don't. Sorry, I worked so hard on this. I want you to benefit from my, my alliteration. Don't, oh, oh, so press on under persecution, right? Don't bend in Babylon, press on during persecution. And the same message to the disciples. The road is going to be hard. You'll be tempted to fall asleep at the wheel. You'll be tempted to toss in the towel. But disciples, stay awake. Why? Because you have a glimpse of the final victory, the coming of the Son of Man. And the same message applies to us. Press on. Don't bend. Stay awake. One of my favorite authors, J.R. Tolkien, in a letter to one of his friends, described, said this. This is included in your sermon notes as well. He says, I am a Christian, so I don't, do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat. You hear what he's saying? He says, I've rationally analyzed the human condition. I don't expect world history. I don't expect your personal history, my personal history, to be anything but the long defeat. And that's what makes his, his writing, The Lord of the Rings, so compelling. It is a story of a long defeat. The end of Middle Earth. Yet, says Tolkien, Amidst the long defeat, we see samples, we see glimpses, often clearly and movingly in legend and story, of a final victory yet to come. And so this side of eternity, in this earthly life, you and I, we are fighting the long defeat. But we see glimpses in these passages and others of a final victory yet to come. The Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and glory. So, don't bend in Babylon. Persevere. Stay awake. Please rise.